seconds flat. Give me up. Put it down, put it This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Hey friends, welcome in for mile 96 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast presented by Run In. We're excited to share some time with you discussing one of the scariest of training topics. It's the time when phantom aches and pains appear, when we panic and think we're undertrained or pray that a few easy days will dig us out of the hole of overtraining. It's when our confidence disappears and we're certain we're losing fitness or the freshness of a lighter training load makes us feel superhuman. And there's no question, it is one of the most befuddling training aspects. It's the taper, those final days or weeks before your big race. Our goal here in mile 96 is to simplify the tapering and peaking period, avoid the madness, and help you reach the start line ready to crush your goals and conquer the world. Plus, We're going to break down the current line of super shoes that have changed the landscape of racing and give you some guidance on what you might want to wear in your next race. But first, let's take a look at last weekend's Berlin Marathon. The men's race was billed as a potential assault on Elliot Kipchoge's world record as Kenanisa Bekele, 201-41 marathoner and former world record holder in the 5,000 and 10,000 meters, claimed to be in better fitness than his personal best time run at Berlin two years ago. And the blistering early pace suggested a record-setting morning was possible. The Pacers took a strong lead pack through 10K in 28 minutes and 47 seconds the fastest first 10K in Berlin history, and the pace only quickened the next 5K. At around 17K, Bekele fell a few steps behind the lead group. He appeared labored, but was this a case of getting dropped or easing off the pacing that was just too hot compared to what the racers had instructed? As the leaders went through half in 60 minutes and 48 seconds, NBC Sports announcer Paul Swangard interjected, it takes me 60-48 to get out of bed in the morning. 12 seconds later, Bekele came through the 13.1 mile mark in 61 minutes, just as prescribed before the race. The somewhat erratic pace setting combined with a slightly warm and humid morning likely contributed to the significant slowing by the leaders and allowed Bekele to reattach around the 25K mark. Kenanisa appeared ready to reassert his dominance as he dueled with Guille Adola, but ultimately faded to third. A massive positive split followed the lightning-fast first half. Adola, who pushed Elliot Kipchoge to the brink at Berlin in 2017, one was truly a battle of survival in 205-45. Next up is the London Marathon this Sunday morning. 
And next week on Mile 97, we'll have a full preview, including course strategy for the Chicago and Boston marathons that are coming at you back to back on October 10th and 11th. So if you're running one of those races, you'll definitely want to tune in. All right, let's dive into the taper. The fundamental premise of tapering is a reduction in training load to offset the cumulative fatigue developed over the course of a hard training cycle and to enter your race feeling fresh and sharp. Multiple longitudinal studies have concluded that tapering can yield on average a 3% improvement in performance versus just maintaining your normal training schedule through race day. So it seems obvious, taper and you'll race faster. But how is the taper executed and what should it look like for you? One point we can all certainly benefit from is the agreement in the scientific literature and among experienced coaches that a reduction in overall volume and maintaining or possibly even slightly increasing your training intensity creates the most effective taper. Within that framework, the questions become, how much do we reduce training? What should our quality sessions look like? Do I run less frequently? Does the upcoming race distance matter in determining my taper? What about leading into tune-up races? In considering these questions, we as runners often overthink the process, drum up doubt, and make the final days before an exciting opportunity more stressful than needed. And even athletes with wise coaches struggle with the uncertainty that stems from running fewer miles just when you feel like you are in peak condition. So let's unpack the nuance of these questions with the caveat of remembering that like effective training, an effective taper is individualized to your needs. You might need to take a risk and trust in some of the principles of tapering that you haven't employed in the past as you experiment with what works best for you. Moreover, remember, being in peak condition and tapering are intertwined. Peaking is the period of prepping your body for a command racing performance. It can possibly be held for multiple races if you have big events on back-to-back -back weeks, like we might see at the end of a scholastic season but most of us target a single big race per cycle. Tapering is the overlapping reduction in fatigue that makes this peak possible. The amount of reduction in training load seems like the key point of divergence between scientific research and experienced coaches and athletes. Both groups assert the significance of reducing volume and present mounds of laboratory and anecdotal evidence to disprove the fear of getting out of shape during a taper. But literature from top researchers like Dr. Scott Trappy of Ball State University suggests the taper can be longer and deeper than commonly prescribed by elite coaches. Is our fear of extending the taper and being in the best state of reduced fatigue holding back performance? Possibly, but athletes and coaches are blending science and art in practice. Legends like Joe V. Hill, Patrick Sang, Renato Canova, Bill Squires, Bill Dellinger, and many, many more, all have strategically reduced their athletes' volume before big races. 
However, they simultaneously consider the importance of maintaining routine, avoiding feeling flat, and keeping a mental edge. The balance between these variables and your fatigue level is central in executing an appropriate taper. While you can take off more days as a means for reducing mileage, most successful coaches have found this to be a less desirable method than reducing the time of each run. For example, in the final week before a race, we want to keep the frequency of runs at between 80 and 100% of your normal frequency. Meaning if you run once daily, we probably won't cut more than one run from your schedule. If you are regularly doubling, then we might trim one or two doubles. But you could possibly maintain the same number of total runs, just making each one shorter. And if you're taking a day off, don't do it the day before your big race, especially if you aren't used to that. Even jogging for 15 or 20 minutes and doing a few strides will help keep you from feeling lethargic on race morning and wards off some of the pre-race jitters. On that note, block out time in the final day or two of your taper for both association and dissociation with the race. Study the course map. Drive the course. Review your race plan. Read back through your training log for confidence. But also maybe go see a movie, watch a college football game, or read a book so you aren't consumed by the event. So, how long should the taper last, and how much should I reduce the time of each run? Effective tapers can last between roughly one and three weeks. One easy day just before the race may leave you feeling tired, and six weeks of cutting back probably will lead you into the trap of losing fitness. However, in between, we see a greatly reduced likelihood of either concern. The distance of your race can impact the length of your taper. A peak 5K may warrant a week to 10 days. Your half marathon may require up to two weeks. And a marathon may need three full weeks. When incorporating multiple weeks of tapering, remember to stair-step your taper with the percentage of total running reducing each microcycle and not dropping off completely at the beginning of the taper. If, for example, you use a two-week taper leading into your marathon and your standard Monday run is an hour, in week one of the taper, it may be 50 minutes. In week two, it may only be 40. On these days, resist the temptation to run faster because you're feeling fresh. Stay focused on the target and keep your easy efforts easy. In time, you'll find the best fit for your body and race distance. I've successfully used only a 10-day marathon taper for myself and some of our athletes. This might work for someone who responds well to high volume or who regularly trains on a 10-day microcycle so he or she feels consistency in training right up to race day. Regardless of the length of taper, your final week of running before the goal race should probably be a 30 to 50% reduction in total mileage from your average training week. And that holds true across distance races. A few more key points here. First, we can't peak a dozen times each year. If your goal for this fall is a marathon personal best, then keep that in your crosshairs. Don't go through the full taper process for a bunch of tune-up races 
so that you can post great times at shorter distances and feel like then I can extrapolate that to marathon success. Strategically use these races within the larger marathon context. For example, my fall target is a December marathon. On the way there, I ran or will run a September 5K, October 10K, and November half marathon. This is more racing than I'm used to, but I've found some excitement and energy in the return of road races and challenging myself at different distances. So my training plan incorporates slight down weeks in volume in the week leading up to each race, just as I would normally need an occasional cutback week in marathon training. And I'm replacing workouts or long runs with these races and seamlessly continuing on with training. Next, Keeping the intensity up is a key way to stay sharp and avoid feeling flat on race day. In general, workouts should become more race specific as the big day nears, but it's also possible you might benefit from increased intensity during the taper period. From analyzing the training logs of successful runners, this appears particularly true when, the, when that increase is slight and for shorter distance races. So a 5K taper workout might increase pace more than a marathon taper workout. In other words, don't spend your entire marathon taper doing full workout sessions at 3K effort. It's probably not translatable. But including work at paces one or two distances shorter than your upcoming race might translate. Also, remember it takes the body 10 days to even multiple weeks to absorb the adaptations of a training stimulus. You aren't getting better three days before the race with your hardest workout of the year. You missed that opportunity a few weeks ago. As they say, the hay is in the barn, but adding some more sleep in those final days can help you absorb those adaptations during your recovery process. Moreover, Modulating other variables may keep your taper workouts more productive. As examples, the rest between repetitions can increase and the total number of repetitions can decrease. Now let's get to some example workout sessions you might use in your upcoming taper. 5K and 10K races require high level mental focus. Engaging for the entire race is difficult. And in a 5K in particular, mental drift can take you out of range for hitting your goal or take you out of range of the leaders if you want to win. We often work on this aspect during the training cycle in continuous tempo runs. While these are an excellent physiological tool, they also provide the psychological benefit of mentally dialing into a sustained, comfortably hard effort. We can work that same quality in our taper by opening a workout with a steady effort at sub-threshold effort. A pace that is, say, a minute or more below 5K pace can be held for 10 or 15 minutes to stimulate the mind, keep us engaged, and wake up but not overtax the body. Then, following with shorter, quicker repetitions aids in the sharpening process. Some common constitutions include 300s or 400s, at a slightly faster than race pace, or 200s as fast as mile pace. 
These are short enough to not build up high levels of acidity in the body. Ending with strides or a few short hill reps to maintain power and neuromuscular coordination creates a nice and complete construction. Alternately, you could tack those shorter reps and strides and or hills on after several intervals at a pace faster than steady if you feel confident in your mental prep work. Something like four by 1K at 10K to 8K pace with one to two minutes of rest, whether that's jogging or walking, might be a useful starting point. Another option is using race modeling. If you have an idea of the potential style of race required, you can mimic this in training. For example, in the lead up to the 2006 Commonwealth Games 5000 meters, Australian star Craig Mottram ran a three by mile workout. He went out in 10K pace for the first rep, then ran the second mile, cutting down each lap from 10K pace to mile pace before ending the session with another 10K pace mile. Matram and his coaches believed his 10K fitness replicated how the race might start and that his cut down technique mid to late race would be required to shake the stiff East African competition. Ultimately, he earned a silver medal and ran sub 13 minutes for 5,000 meters. Also, if your goal is progressively increasing pace during your 5K, then perhaps your taper workouts should utilize a progressive strategy as well. In marathoning, we should first consider the length of your long run. Generally, your last truly long effort occurs two to four weeks out from race day. So what do we do a week out from race day? Well, we might see professionals running up to 30 kilometers a week out. Most of us mortals find success with a bit smaller number. I found a lot of runners are comfortable in the 12, 13, 14 mile range. Again, this keeps us in the ritual of doing our long run, but doesn't excessively fatigue the body. Alternately, you may want to base that effort on time. If 12 to 13 miles is more than two hours for you, then it's probably too much for a week out. You may also like adding a few miles at marathon effort at the close of your last long run. If so, keep the early pace very controlled and comfortable before gradually working down. Capping any final marathon effort, whether ending a long run or as a standalone session, at five kilometers in distance is a safe amount that should be comfortable while also ingraining the feel of race day. However, no marathon is perfectly evenly split. So try to practice effort without getting too caught up in a precise pace. Another method for practicing the feel of any race distance is using a short fartlek workout as a final tune-up. Working a few one-minute segments at race effort reinforces how race day feels. So a classic one-on, one-off construction might work. Or you might replace your strides the day before the race with several fartlek cycles of 15 to 20 seconds at race pace and 60 seconds easy. Renowned Minnesota high school track and cross-country coach Scott Christensen has long used a single lap of the track at race pace the day before a big two-mile or 5K race that leaves the athletes feeling confident in the pace, craving more, but not fatigued. Going back to the marathon and half marathon, 10 to 14 days out can be a great spot for a faster workout, bridging you into the taper period 
or a final shorter tune-up race. Multiple recent high finishers at the early December California International Marathon have used the race's strategic timing to their advantage and raced 8K or 10K turkey trots a week and a half before the marathon. Greg Meyer won a 10K two weeks before winning the Boston Marathon in 1983. Nell Rojas just won the challenging Cooper River Bridge Run 10K two weeks before she goes to Boston. I could continue with similar examples. Just be cautious. Know your body and consider if exerting for this distance all out is too fatiguing for you this close to goal day. A workout option instead of racing is the V-Hill Classic of up to six times one mile, depending on your global volume, at approximately 15 seconds faster than goal marathon pace with two to three minutes rest. This is a very complete recovery period and the miles should feel quick but controlled. They're a tempo you can master while fortifying efficiency at slightly faster than race pace. Another workout example in this time frame for both marathoners and half marathoners is a fartlek of between three and five minutes at 10K effort with one to two minutes easy between cycles. So at the high end, 10, 12, 14 days out, we could do five times five minutes with two minute easy recoveries and perhaps follow with either short hills or strides. In summary, keeping the quality workout sessions in your taper phase, but reducing their volume and or increasing the recovery intervals, coupled with an overall reduction in mileage is the foundational tenet of using the taper to your advantage for your next race. Don't overthink it, get fresh, get sharp, Trust the totality of your training. Let's move to what you're going to wear on your feet for the big day. The single biggest gear decision we all make are racing shoes. And in the era of super shoes, we have more good options than ever. What was once simply a competition among shoe manufacturers to bring us the lightest racing flats is now a war of carbon plates and futuristic foams. For all of these shoes, my evaluations Assess shoe weights at the men's sample size. We'll get started with the brand that changed the game. Leading up to its breaking two marathon in 2017, Nike unveiled the Vaporfly 4%, marketing a 4% improvement in efficiency thanks to its lightweight ZoomX foam and three-quarter length propulsive carbon plate. That shoe since evolved into the Vaporfly Next% Percent and now Next% Percent 2. The Vaporfly Next% Percent series remains my go-to racer. The high stack midsole of ZoomX foam is my favorite feature. More than the carbon fiber plate the running world has raved about and sought to replicate since its inception. The foam leaves you feeling fresher late in a race and not as banged up after. For comparison, I ran the wet, windy, cold 2018 Boston Marathon in the Adidas Sub 2 flat, a traditional class competitor. While I'm really pleased with that performance, my feet and lower legs were beat up afterward, much as they had been in every previous marathon before the super shoes. Weighing under seven ounces with an eight millimeter heel to toe offset, the next percent provides a versatility for racing from 5K to marathon. Where durability was once a major critique of the 4%, more recent models achieve greater durability. 
now at $275, $25 more than the Vaporfly Next Percent, Nike also offers the AlphaFly. The AlphaFly is certainly more of a distance racer as it weighs in slightly heavier and includes Nike's Zoom Air technology in the forefoot. While laboratory testing indicates even higher efficiency improvement in the next percent, it feels a touch clunkier at high speeds when rapidly turning over, and a quick scan of Nike athletes on most race start lines shows their shared preference for the Vaporfly over the AlphaFly. But if you want the ultimate in cushion in this category, or you're entering a road ultra, the Alpha Fly might be the shoe for you. I've actually made this my go-to for a lot of long runs and feel remarkably fresh the next day and ready for subsequent harder workouts. Nike's ZoomX Foam, a PBAX compound that is light and springy, falls in the softer category of super shoes. I prefer a soft feel underfooted strike. As such, the New Balance RC Elite 2 is a commendable competitor to the Vaporfly Next Percent series. New Balance's fuel cell foam provides super soft ground contact, especially at the heel. Although it's nearly an ounce heavier than its Nike counterpart, the RC Elite 2 has a lower stack height, making it feel more like a traditional racer, something you might enjoy if you like to feel the road more, and giving it similar versatility. As compared to its inaugural iteration, the new RC Elite has a little roomier toe box, but the ultra-grippy nubs on the outsole have been removed. First change I appreciate, but the latter I don't love as much. When combined with really smart geometry for the carbon fiber plate, this is a heck of a shoe, and one I've used regularly this training cycle for my fastest workout sessions. New Balance's Super Shoe offering has a price tag of $225. Now let's shift our focus to some of the firmer models. Many of these use foams with a slightly bouncier feel and or a full length carbon fiber plate which yields the firmer or in some cases stiffer feel. For my money, the top of the line in this category comes from Saucony's Endorphin series. Also, an 8mm heel-to-toe drop model like the Vaporfly and RC Elite, the Endorphin Pro checks in at 7.5 ounces. The full-length plate and speed roll technology give the Endorphin Pro, and now Endorphin Pro 2, a rigid but fast feel. The original mutant colorway of the Pro 1 was one of the sickest shoes around. The updates for Edition 2 are largely aesthetic in the upper, but do incorporate a more breathable mesh and snugger fit at the heel. Still, the ride is just a bit harsh for me, and I don't feel quite as fresh afterward as in the Nike or New Balance. For $200, it's a worthy competitor in the firmer subcategory of super shoes. Also, the nylon-plated Endorphin Speed version at $160 is a fun workout and tempo option that I'm sure some of you would enjoy racing in as well, even though it's at 8 ounces. The Speed is actually my favorite all-around shoe in the Endorphin line. And Saucony has created a ton of hype around its super-limited new release, the Endorphin Pro Plus. Pro Plus features an uber light upper which cuts the weight below seven ounces while using the same midsole technology as the Pro. And it has a really clean white on white with silver and black accents look. 
If you can find one, the Pro Plus costs $275. Skechers has given us multiple super shoe choices with the Speed Freak as its newest top of the line shoe. Give me anything with Skechers Hyperburst Foam. I absolutely love it. This is their marathon racer with the most foam and highest stack height while staying lightweight at 7.2 ounces. Like their other super shoes, we see a four foot winged carbon plate, which plays well if you're a four foot striker. My concern with the Skechers racing line has been the more narrow tapered toe box. My preference is for more space up front, but if you like the traditional racing flat feel, the Speed Freak shape might be more in your wheelhouse. And the Razor Elite is still my preferred Skechers Super Shoe. At $155, it's more affordable than the $200 Speed Freak. And even though it's not truly a marathon shoe, the Razor Elite is crazy versatile for workouts and shorter races. Hoka was one of the first to follow Nike into the business of super shoes, and they drummed up excitement with Jim Walmsley's 100K world record attempt in California where the shoes debuted. First, it was the Carbon X, followed by the Rocket X. Both use a full-length carbon fiber plate at $180, with the Rocket being the lighter weight option. But they aren't the super soft ride many of us have come to expect in a Hoka. To fill that space, Hoka recently introduced the Bondi X, a heavier but softer carbon-plated model based on their extremely popular Bondi line. Although beefier, this has more of the feel you might imagine in a Hoka super shoe, and it's marketed as a plated shoe for the masses, not just the elite racer. It sells for $200. One of the biggest positives going for Hoka's racing line is the inherent stability of all of these models. If you are in upstate South Carolina or Western North Carolina, you can of course check out most of these models at our presenting sponsor, Run In. There's a couple other competitors out there with the Adidas Adios Pro 2 being the most exciting to me and Mizuno now entering the field with their new Wave Rebellion but I haven't put enough miles on the others yet to give you a full review. So that's the landscape of racing shoes as of fall 2021. Go try a few pairs on and feel speedy as you hit the starting line for your event, tapered and ready to race. That's it for mile 96. We'll see you back here next week as we provide course strategy for the Chicago and Boston marathons and look at these stacked elite fields. I cannot wait for those races. Everyone have a great week and we'll talk to you soon.